Philip is a special global counsel at Alan Ogre, uh, where he was a partner for 30 years. He's been a visiting professor here at the LSE, at Oxford, at Cambridge, at QMU. He is, amazingly, the author of 18 books. 18 books. Whilst he was a partner at A&O, and, and when you're a partner at A&O, it's not like you're putting your feet up relaxing most of the time. You're working really hard. As an academic, that's truly amazing how anyone can actually produce so much work. And we are just really honored to have you here tonight, Philip. You're going to talk to us about international risk for banks and corporates. Um, how long you talk for 30, 35 minutes? Is that okay? Yeah. Take questions? Perfect. Great. Thank you. Over to you. Thank you very much. I hope you don't mind me sitting down, but uh, for various complicated reasons, I've pulled them up. So. Don't overdo it on the trip, that's all I can say. <laughs> right, my friends. So thank you very much for coming to this talk. I'm really most honored and privileged. I always feel LSE is, I'm not allowed to say this, by the way. Um, and I don't say it to them all. <laughs> uh, but I think there's something special about the LSE um, for various reasons. I think probably the book intake. I'm absolutely convinced also it's the incredible quality of the academics who teach you. Very well informed. More of this. And also the quality of the students and the fact that uh, you know people who come here, um, I all of you are, are, are lawyers, is that right? Or perhaps not all of you. But um, you know, one thing which unites you, which I have to share, is that you are members, you are the priests of a universal religion. <laughs> it's not quite a religion, but it's like a religion in the sense that you can believe in it. And in fact, everybody in the world believes it. Everybody in the world sort of thinks that the law plays a role in our society, some sort of role. And, and the questions which you will have to answer is what is the role? And I think it's a very important question, particularly about in the relation to things I'm going to talk to you about, which is not, I'm not talking about human rights or anything like that. I, those things are very important. But I'm talking to you about wholesale law, finance, corporations, this sort of thing. Because you see, I think those are important as well. They're not some technical remote topic. They're not sort of, you know, things which are sophisticated, arcane, exotic, which the ordinary person is not interested in, because everybody has to be interested now. Because if these things go wrong, then, you know, it's trouble for everyone. You can, you know, these things, if they do go wrong, they can have devastating consequences. And the consequences can sometimes be attributable to the violation of some very simple principles. Now, you're all thinking, oh, we're in for another bank bashing. So, no, I'm not going to do that. I think the whole thing is much more profound, more <coughs> The wicked banks, wicked money, what a joke. Now, oh yeah. So this is uh, your realm. So, you know, whether you practice in Moldova or uh, Saratoni, Kazakhstan or London or New York. In all of these countries, this will be your domain. Even if, you know, you, you practice just, you do high street work, divorces and motor accidents and debt collection, that sort of thing. You find that everything you do in the world has a resonance. And so, one of the first targets is to understand that. 
At one time, you know, in, uh, in my office, we only just dealt with a few jurisdictions around the world, G20. But now, you deal with them all. By the way, how many jurisdictions are there there? Well, how many countries are there in the world? Let's just start with countries. A country. Well, let's just start with sovereign states. How many sovereign states are there? 174. Very good try. It's a bit more than that now. It's going up a bit. There are actually about 198 sovereign states. Who are the latest sovereign states? Because it's creeping out. Libya is creeping out. South Sudan. South Sudan, very good. It's a good class, this. Very good class. She's obviously destined for the Supreme Court. It's a revision before we came. You're from where? Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Okay, well, I'll try another question in a minute. Who was before South Sudan? Kosovo's Kosovo. Kosovo, very good, yeah. And another country there, also quite recent. East Timor, you are very good. And another one? Montenegro, also. Now, to be honest with you, I'm not very happy with Montenegro because <laughs> there is not room for Montenegro on my map. They didn't ask me. I mean, I understand your aspiration, but there's no room in that part of the world. Too many countries. And I think, you know, the whole German episode in 1989 was good because there they were making my life much easier by reducing the number. Now the thing is there are actually, although there are about just under 200 countries, there are 320 jurisdictions. I mean, as you know, in the States, I don't know whether you say the 50 or 51, it depends where you count, you know, the District of Columbia, doesn't it? And I suppose whether you count uh, Puerto Rico. Anyway, so, but I mean, we're talking about 320. And so that's quite a big number. But the key thing is that at one time, you know, as I said, there were just a few of them one dealt with. But nowadays, as Sarah at the back will tell you, if you do a takeover of, of, uh, of, uh, which involves a large group, you will find they've got subsidiaries in 100 countries. And then suddenly you have to deal with a whole lot of technical questions about, you know, FDI and employee rights and whether they can give security and, you know, loads of things. And director liability, all this. For a hundred countries, well, how do you do that over the weekend? Quite hard, actually. Got to get with those But that would not be abnormal. So you start having to get a sense of what's going on in this this world. Maybe we can talk about that. So the key thing is, at one time, now the situation is that everybody's interested in the world, even Saturn, even Chad even Tajikistan. You know, I'm told that even Bhutan has sort of come out of there. Even Cambodia has got a stock exchange. And there are only one or two countries which are not interested. They still stand sulkily, sulkily apart. North Korea, maybe. Cuba's sort of wondering what to do. And I agree, not, not much going on in Afghanistan. I mean in, in uh, Antarctica. But everyone's there, they're all interested, they're all moving in various speeds. So that's the first risk. Practically everything you do has an echo, a resonance, which is external. Now I'm going to talk about legal risk because I'm interested in it. And I'm very interested in the law and what it does, what it's supposed to do. And the view I take is that the law is supposed to be our friend, our ally, our support and help, not our enemy. And once the law becomes an enemy, by fettering us, manicling us, tying us down, creating risks, then something wrong. <coughs> So we need to explore this, because I think it's quite complicated. I mean, I think it's quite complicated. Now this here, you see, uh, 
you can see I, I lost uh, this, I think, when I was in uh, Africa. Yes, Africa. I did a tour in Africa. <clears throat> so this lady here, you know, she's got something on her mind. And this idea is so important to her that she's armed. And everyone there is armed. Even a little guy there who's age 10 has got a gun. And the whole society is there. You know, if you go through all these people, it's an allegorical picture, and they've all got guns. And everybody's there, the merchants, the peasants, the soldiers, the lot. And this woman here has got a bayonet, a big gun, with a bayonet on it. Now we all know, this is Delacroix, Liberty Leading the People, 1830, attacking the Louvre. Now we know she was going on about political ideals and democracy and freedom. But it's relevant because the law is a system of restriction. The law restricts conduct. And so we have to say, why does it do that? And we also have to say, is this woman right when you're on the raft? You know this raft that was painted by Jericho. 1817, something like that. And it shows the passengers and the crew, well, not many of the crew, from the Medusa ship, which had hit a sandbank off the coast of Senegal, now Mauritania, on the 2nd of July, 1816, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And they were 40 or 50 kilometers from the coast. They couldn't see the coast. And so it was a terrible storm. And so the crew built this raft. And everybody got on it, except some members of the crew and the captain. They tied the raft with ropes to the six ship's boats. And the idea was that they would row the raft to the shore. Now, unfortunately, they had other ideas, because they cut the ropes and rowed off, leaving this thing with 147 people on it, with no rudders, navigation equipment, nothing, floating around in the sub-Saharan sun, which they did for three weeks. And at the end, 15 got off. Actually, Jericho has about 20 people on it for the composition. What happened to the others? Well, actually, they were killed. They all fought on the raft over the brandy and biscuits, not much. So that's what they did for the three weeks most of the time. And when the Argus, just on the horizon, picked them up, it was pretty revolting, you know, there were bits of people, flesh hanging, cooking in the sun. And the guy pointing there is Korea, engineer, he wrote a very accusatory bestseller about what happened on the rock. So that was not so good. And I compare it to this here. More recent, you know. That's uh, those miners in Chile. They were rough guys. You know, they were rough guys. Some of them were drunks. They didn't have a college education or anything like that. But they were stuck as if they were on a raft. What did they do? They appointed a captain. Okay, he couldn't row away, but he wouldn't. So there was a rule there. And the second thing they did was they said, we got so much food, we're going to have so much per day. And so what happened? They all got out. Why did they get out? They had a legal system. They thought it up. They made a legal system. Why did they make a legal system? To survive. So that's the point, which I'm making simply. We have a legal system, not just about murder and you know, torture and genocide and you know, no arbitrary arrest but also about how we govern our corporations and our banks and so on, to survive. And so the first question is always how you measure a legal system. Is, is it dedicated to survival or is it dedicated to crushing this or that group? You with me so far on this? Oh, there's also another picture. Same lady, bit better dressed. They always say that the uh, revolution happens, you know, when you're in the shower. 
This check, yeah. That's Delacour. He was a friend of Jerica. And so the paintings are going to be in the Louvre. The paintings about five meters from each other. They're very close. I always go in there to look at these huge canvases because they're so iconic. Then Delacroix saw the raft of the Medusa. He's reported to have run down the Plus Vendor, screaming in terror and ecstasy at the power of the state. So, now, so let's just look at that. That's very depressing, that picture. But again, it's also quite iconic in what the allegory is, the allegory. Now, you can say, well, what do banks do? Well, you might say, well, what's, uh, you know, what, what's money for? It's a very, very good invention. Invented long before Newton showed up, or Galileo, or Einstein. And frankly, if you didn't have money, I'm not quite sure how you would buy a loaf of bread. Well, you couldn't. You wouldn't have anything. It was a smart idea. And one of the greatest inventions we've ever had. So it's hard to work out why people think money is dangerous, or wicked, or evil. It's an absolute necessity. And the laws are servant, not our master. And if we didn't want money, you know, if we didn't want it, if we really felt it was completely useless, you know, we could just do that, couldn't we? We could just do that. Why don't we do that? Because that's an act of battle to do something like that. It's also a criminal purpose to it. I hope you won't tell. Thank you. <laughs> I once did that. for a short, for a short <laughs> second. <laughs> I once did that in a lecture at Cambridge before the Argentinian insolvency. And a student came running out and picked up all the bits. please. <laughs> <laughs> Now when you turn the lights on in here, the lights come on, why do they come on? Because there's a power station and a grid. Why is it a power station? Because it's been financed. You know, in, in market economies, it's been financed by banks, not, not by the taxpayer. But it makes a difference, doesn't it? And a safe thing. So if you say, well, who's really financing it? Well, the people who have, you know, these things, where do they put it? They put it in banks and say banks were an invention in simple terms, an elementary idea of somebody to look after. And so it's the banks who lend the money for the power station with switches on the lights, but who's really the creditor? The citizen. You know, if you strip aside all the bells and incorporation and, you know, everything, you come back to the citizen. It's the citizen's money, what's money? It's the product of the citizen's work and labor. That's how we represent it. And it's that money which doesn't just buy the note, it connects us to other people so that we can buy mangoes and bananas, and so that we can communicate with other people, and so that you can invest in pensions and it's your future. That's what it's for. So the banks really are like reservoirs which collect the labor of the people. You know, like the rain. And then they're supposed to irrigate the land with it. The power station or the hospital, well, you know what it is. That's what banks do. And that's something which Karl Marx never worked out. Because that is the pooling of the means of production of the people. I don't know why he couldn't work that out. I mean, it's such an obvious thing that capitalism should actually be communism, you know, essentially. <laughs> so fundamentally, I don't think it's such a bad idea. I mean, it's hard to think about. You know, maybe that other idea. Of course, I know loads of money is wasted. I mean, out of the deals I've done, I would think 95% are rubbish. <laughs> you know, waste. But you know, then people waste their lives. It's not unreasonable. Even if we only get 5% out of it, it's not all that bad. You know, we've got another 3.5 billion years, whatever it is. But of course, 
That's what happens to banks. Well, I'm not going into the reasons. They're all sorts of, that's not just because they're wicked. I, I don't believe that, John. Lots of things go wrong with banks. The number of fraudulent banks is very small. You know, BCR, CCI was an example. Most of, most of that happens because the sovereign state is insolvent, most of them. And others have happened because of macroeconomic depressions or they're ignited by a monetary policy, like, for example, the last financial crisis was ignited by the fact that Alan Greenspan and the Fed, I'm not having a go, but I think he's a good guy and he meant well. But the fact is he gave money away without realising it was someone else's money. He priced it at nothing. And if you price money at nothing, because the central bank can do that, then people do tend to take it. It's a gift. Who, who, was, being, who was losing the people whose money it was? It was as if somebody forcibly said, oh yes, this is worth you know, this, this amount of revenues, but I'm going to give it away for nothing. So that, all right, it was a redistribution. Nothing wrong with redistribution. We do it under the taxes and everybody does. What was wrong with that? Nobody knew. Not even the Fed. They didn't know that there was a, a redistribution going on otherwise through the tax system. So to me, we come back to the raft again. If you break some rule which is basically ethical, you know, you may disagree with this. Things can go wrong. Which they did in space. I don't want to go into this, but I want to mention this. But what is the difference between those two panels? <laughs> oh, by the way, the guy at the top there is Fidel Castro and Maximilien de Robespierre, who's a French revolutionary terrorist. The others you probably know. Like African at the bottom. And these guys over here, Mr. Greenspan's there somewhere at the bottom, Stalin, Merkel, Tutu, Mayer, the other charming Mr. Berlusconi. <laughs> so what's the difference between those two groups? They're all lawyers. <laughs> <laughs> Even Putin was trained as a lawyer. So, uh, Sarkozy's first cabinet, which had Christine Lagarde, you know, she's a lawyer, she said, had nine out of 16 had been trained as lawyers. So, you know, is there something special about their job? So we'll come along to that later. Anyway, so the first thing which uh, has happened in our society is when something goes wrong, the legislator waves a legal wand, and so you get more law. And they never do the arithmetic. For instance, the Dodd-Frank Act, which is sort of, you know, the legislation which deals with the banking crisis in the United States. I used to work out that my students at Oxford Cambridge, and I was lecturing there. I tried to work out how much the most fanatical students would learn in a year at LLM level. Number of pages, actually learn them. And I thought, well, I gave students 400 pages, which they're supposed to learn. And they had four courses, so that's 1,600. But they'd be, the most students, I don't think, they'd learn more than 400 pages in total. I mean, of concentrated notes, I don't mean read. But a fanatical student who never went out, never watched television, never sat home, just sat in his own room, I thought 1,000 was the maximum they would learn in a year. Learn. Three pages a day. I don't know what you think of that. Anyway, that's a uni year. Now, if the Dodd-Frank and all the financial regulation <coughs> in the United States is 100,000 pages, that is 100 uni years. So that it would take our fanatical students 100 years just to learn that. So there's something wrong because that's only one country and it's only one tiny sliver of the law. That also shows the rate of change over a 10-year period. And if you look at the rate of change in company law, I mean, you know, this is, again is changing. All this is changing. That's the rate of change. So you get a lot of volatility going on. Now, what is important is this. Now, I was guessing. What I did was to track from 500 BC to now the increase in the amount of law. So first of all, I tracked population, which you can get estimates. And so the population 
in 10,000 BC of the world was about 10 million. And then at the time of Christ, it was thought to be about 250 million. And so by the time we got to 1830, it was the first billion, which is now multiplied by seven. So population's gone up seven times since 1830, roughly 1830. And if you take GDP, and I'm relying mainly on Angus Madison, amongst others, the great historical economist, GDP is now 70 trillion, but in 1830 it was 700 billion, which is about the same as Australia or Turkey, roughly. But now that's gone up 85 times. So, you know, these extra people produced more, invented more, at a much greater rate. What happened to legal systems? Well, I really don't know, but we know how long Hammurabi's code was of 1772 BC. We know roughly how long, you know, Leviticus is, all those rules of Leviticus about who you're allowed to make love to, and, then we, and what you're allowed to eat. We know uh, how long Justinian's codes were. We know how long the French codification thing was. We know how long the US tax code was in 1830, how long it's in now. So we know that. So roughly working out, I think the law has multiplied between 1,000 and 10,000 times. Roughly. There was no company law then. There was no regulatory law, no insurance, nothing. And I think it's at least that. It could be a million. I don't know how you count. Anyway, I was sort of guessing, until I read some other you know, historical work, where this chap, Ian Morris, was working out human development, which is technology, information processing, writing, uh, organization mobility, military, power production, all that, the West versus the East, since 14,000 BC, and he came to the same conclusion as me, a bit earlier, 1750, nothing happened in history till 1750, then zoom. What I thought. So don't read any history book which goes back before 1750. Is what he said. I mean, I know, you see, I have some questions about Ian Morris's work. But anyway, so let's look at this. 1995, there were three football fields of GDP. So it was the US, of 10 trillion each. US, 10 trillion. EU, 10 trillion. And then the rest, 10 trillion, of which Japan and the Tigers were half. And the rest of the world, Africa had 3%. 1995, when did that start? 1830, roughly. That's a, what the economists call the Great Divide, when for some reason Western Europe pulled away from the rest. Why did that happen? You know, I really don't know. I don't think there's anything special about the Western Europe. I don't know. I'm not an economic determinist or anything like that. But I don't think there's anything special about them. I really don't go for that. I don't. And anyway, it's going to change. 2010, we have five football fields. And in 2030, according to Angus Madison and Goldman Sachs and various other people, we could have 10, 12, 15. So what's the consequence? More power stations, more warmth, more light, all that. The laws? If five football fields produce the mayhem, which we had in 2008, how much more is 10, 12, 15. Because you know, all that GDP is people's work. You know, what they produce. It's not going under the mattress. Where's it going to go? Banks, capital markets, corporations, shares. That's where it's going to go. And so what's likely to happen? Well, in my view, human nature is not suddenly going to change. I really don't think so. Do you know, half the sovereign states in the world have been bust since 1980. It's not just banks which go bust. Sovereign states, half of them. So I don't think, really, looking around, that our delightful credulosity, our sweet amiability, our optimism, our hopes, you know, our charming stumbling around is going to change. And that's what happens. When people stumble around, they trip over the pavement. So what does that mean from your point of view? more law. Do I welcome that? Absolutely not. Well, all that shows you, I won't go to this, shows laws up there. We don't know the equations and we don't know how they apply in practice. We're not very good at working it up. That's why 
you know, being a student of law is such an important difficult job. I'm only showing that because a lot of people feel great. They, they want to go there. That picture is not just a picture of you know, the figure of love. That's a picture about paradise, about utopia, about some beautiful world where everybody was at peace. She's also on a lot. Well, more. Capacious lady. So what's wrong? Why shouldn't we yearn for that? Well, what's wrong is that we have the world as it is now. And we do have a world which is financialized with banks and corporations and all that. We do. And it's not, you know, it's risky. But if we go back, there never was that world. There never was a paradise. I know some people think there was, but I don't think so. The world that represents was a world of darkness, disease, and death. The world past there, you had no electricity, no light. Most people had no water. Children died in childbirth, so did their mothers. So, you know, if people want to go back, I really have some problems about that. We have to go forward. And we have to deal, you know, with the real world we, we live in, with all of these problems. Well, I'm not going to go through all these other slides. I said only 35 minutes, so we go to the end. Because I want to say something quite simply. So this is what I posed. What we do have in the world is a great deal of risk because of regulatory systems, because of a highly engineered legal systems, because of immense fines which can be imposed, so that the law becomes very risky. And because of the rate of change of law, because it's disproportionate in size, very difficult, very inaccessible for the ordinary person to understand, let alone expert. And so if you say, what is the role of those people there? Well, if you take the heroes of economists, well, they would include Adam Smith, Karl Marx, David Ricardo, John Maynard Keynes, Milton Friedman, some of you may say Hayek, Jean-Baptiste Say. Those are their heroes. What characterizes those heroes? They're very recent. They're very recent people. Very great. They're a huge contribution they made to bring quantification to, to the game, which I think is useful. But if you say, who are the heroes of the lawyers? Well, who are your heroes? Who are the heroes of lawyers? Well, maybe you say, oh, anybody got a hero in the law? Kielsen. Huh? Kielsen, the Austrian constitution. Um, oh, yeah. I do, and that he is here. Any others? Well, I suppose people make any other areas you got? Do I hear music playing? Gretchen, some people might say. Heart, the working. Oswald, the literary heart. Oh, yeah. Yes, the legal philosophy. The working. Yes, no, he, he would be a sort of hero. Yeah, no, you wouldn't. I mean, you could say Justinian, or I don't know. But you see, actually, I think that that's not old enough. Because if you go back to the first list, I don't think you, you know you get men with white coats to carry me away at this point. And I'm not saying you priests or rabbis or imams or brahmins or anything like that. But the first lawyers were people like that. There was a chap there with his on the mountain, you know, the burning bush and ten bullet points. He's got a tablet which has got ten bullet points. What were those bullet points? Laws. They were laws. What were they laws for? In case you're on the raft. They were. Pretty basic. But, you know, they were rules about what you're supposed to do in life. Family, uh, you know, don't kill, don't steal. Really, not bad. Uh, this Jack Jainism, also, you know, developments of Hinduism with a code. A bit waffly. Okay, a bit waffly. But, you know, like the other fellow there, down on his stone, who died in 583, Siddhartha, he did have a I mean, really, it was not bad if you go through his points. 
Not bad. I don't think it was too bad. Right thinking, right conduct, all of that. Pretty good. Again, bit bothery. Uh, Christ didn't have much of a code because he fell back on, on the ten bullet points. But he did add love your neighbour. That was the one thing he did add, which I don't know. Again, in, term, in legal terms, not a lot. But when you got to the guy with the black box, you know, his book is a legal book. It really is. Practically every line has got quite developed because, you know, it was 600 years later. So they've been working on the issue about how you actually, because I mean, you know, Mohammed was a merchant and he started to think about these issues. And in fact, it was very advanced for the time, extremely advanced, I think so. Particularly on women. Confucius died 479. Okay, not supernatural, not transcendental. But his book, his books, the Analects, are okay. I didn't think the Analects were all that good, but maybe it's a translation. I'm sorry. So they're the first words. So. So I'm saying to you that one, when you get to the point in 15 years from now, now you'll all be ministers of justice and uh, senior partners in law firms and deans of faculties in the great universities. When you get to that point, you're going to have a very difficult world. A very difficult world. And there are a lot of people out there who think they can sort it. But I don't think they can. I think the only people who can sort it are lawyers. I honestly think that. I know a lot of lawyers are just ordinary people and, you know, venal and pedantic and, you know, all these things uh, to tell you who can't see the picture. That's fine. It really doesn't matter. So long as there are some there, and hopefully some from this class, who will be able to help. Because not only will it be very difficult if my predictions are right, which they hope they're not, if my predictions are right, it'll be a much more dangerous world, and you're going to have to have people who can put it together. And that's very difficult to do. It's, it's almost impossible now. In my practice, oh, you know, people ask me, you know, can I put an embedded derivative in a transaction in Kuwait? I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> and even subjects in which I'm a specialist, believe it or not, I, I'm one of the world authorities, one of the world authorities, on the law of set-off. If you ask me whether a foreign bank you can net against a, 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 a you know a German bank branch in New York, again I've already looked at that, and I'm close to an expert. So this is the world you'll have to deal with, and at the bottom you will also have to deal with the big issues about the raft and 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 the woman standing up there, because you see. Always the tire back. You know, things may go well. But always the tire back. We hear some terrible chapters. Drawing here. Whipped by a charioteer who's totally blind, who doesn't care about GDP or us or anything. And this horse is foaming in the night. You may say, oh, well, it's a cat. But it's not a cat. Anyway, I'm very confident that this class is now pitched to deal with the future. <laughs> and given the excellent education which you have, and given the fact that a thousand pages would be peanuts as far as you're concerned, <laughs> I'm fully confident that you will try and save us all from our spend. Although they may be drafted by lawyers, they're not driven by lawyers. 
for example, if you took a very simple example, I know it's sort of very topical at the moment, so I don't mean to I don't mean to be too contemporary. But if you took something like the Dodd Frank, okay, the loads of lawyers in Congress, a lot. I think sixty percent or something like that. But that was not driven by legal thinking. That act was basically people expressing their indignation of what happened through the statute book. Now, I personally don't think, the st I think the statute book is a holy thing. And I don't think it's a place where you rant and rant, but I think they did for a thousand pages. That's what they all sit around, shouting, this, this, we'll fix these guys. So I, I think that's regrettable. I just don't think that's how we should be uh, governing our affairs. But that's, that's just driven by people's emotions. People are very, very indignant. I understand all that. I can see why they're indignant. But still, you know, when we pass laws now, we need really to be measured. You know, you have to be quite cool about emotion. You get carried away by emotions. And lots of people do. And they get carried away by emotions, especially to do with money and banks and all these things, because they're frightened and we shouldn't be. We need laws. Unless you can come up with a better solution. No, 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 fair enough, but that makes sense. I have two particular questions, maybe they're interrelated, but you can shed some light on them. One, um, I'm particularly not a lawyer. Um, however, uh, however, I decided to choose to study law because I myself had seen or underwent severe injustice. But seeing law itself, there is existence of law. When you said we amongst us would be the future change drivers. Implementation of law is what I am perturbed by, number one. Number two, you spoke during your uh, lecture, you were talking that law and ethics or morality, it's very subjective. What may be moral for you, I may outrightly say, by virtue of my nature, mm, ah, this is an extraordinary restriction. Mm. Um, so it's very subjective. So how do you then, or how would you shed light on the facts that, one, to reduce the subjectivity, and secondly, implementation? This is what I would like to learn from you. Well, I mean, I mean, that's a very good question. My view is that you need extraordinarily refined ethical feelings or sense to be able to work out what law should say, because it's not obvious. And you know, <coughs> what people generally think is ethical. It may not be. I mean, the example I always give, because it seems so technical, was about the pricing of money. Because when money was priced that way, it did ignite a crisis. It's ignited. And that was the central bank. So to me, there was an ethical question as to whether it was okay to price money that at nothing. Of course, the th I'm not having to go to the Fed, by the way, because there were legitimate economic functional reasons why they did, because they wanted to encourage home ownership, they wanted corporate America not to have to pay too much on its debt. They didn't want to have to pay China too much on the public debts. And all of these good reasons. They were good reasons. They wanted corporate America to compete with Europe and Japan. Fine. Because so, they got cheap money. So those were policy reasons. But at the same time, there was a loser, which was the citizen whose deposits were used. Now, I know that may seem very strange, but that's actually what happened. It, it, was the, it was the savers who paid for it, because they were the creditors. So what was really going on is that the, the central bank was playing Robin Hood. Now, you can argue that everything is completely legitimate, and I think there's strong arguments as to why it was. But I'm saying that in that case, nobody factored in the fact that there was a redistribution, or that that could give rise to trouble, which it did. It just didn't occur either to the population or to the central bank. And I think that's an ethical question. And we always get these ethical questions. And lots of people would say, that was a very good policy. 
Yeah, I understand. I'm, I'm not you know, arguing the policy. But I am arguing that if people don't take into account taking, you could get it done. Oh yeah, I mean there's a great deal of difference around the world between what the written law is and also how it's implemented. And in the studies I've done, I might be able to show you. You know, this is well back. <coughs> do you know they do these studies? Transparency International. They would do that. Well, I coloured I colored in 24 indexes. World Bank, Transparency International, about the rule of law, corruption, you know, where the legal system goes mm -hmm. from. And I just gave them a colour. Blue, they were at the top, red at the bottom. And these are people like Heritage Foundation, World Economic Forum, World Justice Project, people like that. And then what I did was I ranked all the countries according to GDP per capita. And so if you were a rich country, the legal system worked pretty well on, on, the, on their metrics, well back then. If you're a very poor country, which are the red, you know, you were red on, on all these rule of law things. So what does this prove? Well, nothing except that poor countries don't spend money on the legal system. Why not? Well, they're trying to survive, trying to stay alive. And, uh, you know, you can't really say, oh, that's wrong. It's not a priority with them. Maybe you say it should be. That you get to the blue, you know, by prosperity. I don't But this is very striking to me that all this work is only showing one thing, that wealthy countries have got working legal systems and very poor countries don't. So it's a lot of effort. Because then what do you draw from that? Well, you just draw that, you know, it's best to be wealthy, no better legal system. I don't know, it's very hard to work out cause and effect. And I'm not necessarily saying the people who compile these indexes are right. In fact, in a lot of cases, I think they're measuring the wrong thing. I don't really think they're measuring the right thing. Got the gentleman in the back, anyone else? Just let me know. Yes, I'm trying to first of all, thank you very much for this interesting lecture. Um, Related to the last question, um, you said that the central banks ignited the financial crisis. But are we making the same mistake now? Because interest rates are very low, the capital markets are booming, and there's nothing going to the mainstream. Or the mainstream economy is still, I don't know. Are we making the same mistake? Well, it's very hard to, to answer that question because I think a lot of it is quite technical, but again, quite central. I mean, what has basically happened, the banks at the time had, were very irresponsible in my view. It was very irresponsible how they behaved. And uh, I also think everybody is irresponsible in the sense that if you say who's to blame, you just look in the mirror, you know, because everybody was involved. Even the IMF said conditions were benign in April 2007. But we don't measure ourselves about how we got into the mess, because we often get into a mess, and not because we're evil or wicked, that's not true. It's because we are in a moment, because we haven't worked things out. The question is how to get out of it. And I think our method of getting out of the moment is not particularly good. I mean, I think in the regulatory regime, capital had to go up a lot. Capital was too low, really too low. But all this other stuff, you know, the thousand page of Dodd-Frank, I don't get it. I think a lot of it's very backward. That, that's my view. But you know, I, I'm in a minority on that. I admit it, I'm in a minority. Most people don't agree with my point of view. Because I have to read all this stuff. <laughs> so yes, I think this is too much law. I, I think they're making too much law. They could have had two rules. They said, right, from now on, you, don't, you can't have 2% capital, you've got to have 11%. Good. I think that would have been a good thing to do. And the second thing, they should have another rule which said, watch out next time. Because how do you say to someone? Then you had to know one thing, that houses were overpriced. That's all you had to know. Nothing, nothing okay. Only had to know one thing. How many rules do you make to say there's a bubble? 
Could I have used Chair's privilege for a second for living? And I'd like to tell us more about why we're the saviors, why everyone in this room is a lawyer. We think we're good at this, right? Great, we're going we're gonna to have a future role as, as, as saving the world. And it's not clear to me why you think that. Is it, is it because the increasing complexity of the legal world needs to be managed and avoided? Is, is, is that the role of the transactional lawyer to enable people to live in this world and manage that increasing complexity that is produced for no good reason? Is that is that why lawyers are so important as far as you're concerned to the future? Uh, well, again, a very good question, which I, I've sort of tried to work out probably. I haven't got to a, a, a conclusion. Because firstly, people are not their jobs. You can't say that because somebody's a lawyer, they're going to think legally, because a lot of people don't. And you can't say that a doctor or an economist doesn't have a moral equipment, because they do. Because they all people, and that's how they think morally, to a degree. But I, I think that lawyers have got a, an edge, and it's a critical edge. It's like mice and men, 97% the same genes, you know, but the 3% is the difference. So if you take my job, which is pretty boring, by the way, um, I have a really boring life like this. But you know, I've spent a lot of my life just, you know, drafting loan agreements and negotiating them and bond issues and things like that, which are mind-numbingly boring, let me tell you. But even when you sit in there arguing the most stupid little clause, some warranty or something, all the time you're thinking, what's reasonable? In the most trivial little, pitifully futile clause, you're always thinking, what's reasonable? So you're not thinking all about the big issues. You're saying, we've got to get this deal through. How do we get people to agree? Because you know, financial assets aren't an asset. They're two people circling each other with mixture, suspicion, and admiration, yeah, you know. And lawyers are really just trying to get them to agree, not catch anybody else. And to get them to agree, you're really appealing to reason. And so it's that feeling which is embedded in lawyers. I, I, I like lawyers. I mean, I know I'm very uh, biased and all that. And I lead a narrow life, and I don't know anything about what goes on outside my sphere of existence. But I like them because at the end of the day, they are on the side of this universal secular religion. At the end of the day, they are. And at the end of the day, they're trying to think of what's reasonable. Usually. I mean, there are, we've got our heretics, you know, fanatics. We don't. But on the whole, <coughs> as, a, as a community, I think part of I think that's a fantastic way to end this talk. So we're feeling pretty good now. I think. So, uh, so thank you so much for a wonderful talk.